Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll revisit President Biden's student debt forgiveness plan. In a new Concord Coalition issue brief, our chief economist, Steve Robinson, raises the possibility that this plan impinges on the congressional power of the purse. And Steve will be our first guest today. And then we'll get the latest from uh, uh, Tory Gorman on progress and Capitol Hill on whether they can pass a so-called continuing resolution to avoid a partial government shutdown by the end of the week. Tory and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Uh, well, Steve, uh, front and center this week, an issue brief that you wrote with the catchy title, Canceling Student Debt, colon, Presidential Power of the Purse? Question mark. Um, I kind of like that title, and uh, we'll get into that in a minute. But we're revisiting the uh, President Biden's proposal to cancel certain student loan debt and uh, change some of the repayment terms on other loans into the future. And uh, so before we get into that, uh, just so we know what we're talking about here, there are various proposals on how much this would uh, cost the federal government. Uh, what are those, what's the range of estimates there? <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, the, the administration has not released their own official cost estimate. Um, and so that has resulted in, in wide speculation by various groups. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of, of estimates out there. The most notable one, I suppose, is, is the Penn Wharton budget model. And they have estimated that the, uh, the, the entire package of, of changes that, that were announced by the president would cost roughly a trillion dollars over the next 10 years. Um, some people have said that's a little high. I could make a case that that might even be a little bit low, but, you know, but, but we're, dollars, talking about, we're talking about real money here. <laughs> I a, mean, trillion, real... a trillion dollars passes the threshold for being real money. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Not a rounding error. <laughs> no. no. All right. So we, we know that uh, there's a lot of money at stake here. Um, how is this? I mean, is, is this money that is. Um, <laughs> does the president have the authority to do this? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, if you ask, ask him, he says yes. But, but I, I guess I beg to differ. Uh, so, so I guess it's important to point out there are really two major parts to what the, uh, the president has proposed. Uh, the first part is the loan forgiveness. He's basically going to write off the debt uh, of, of a certain group of, of current and former students. He basically said that if you earn uh, your current income is less than one hundred twenty-five thousand for a single or two fifty, uh, two hundred fifty thousand for a couple, he's going to to let you write off between ten and twenty thousand dollars of your student loans. So to the extent that you've incurred debt as a college student, you simply write that off. You don't have to repay it. Uh, the, the difference is, is that if, if at some point in the past 
you are a Pell Grant recipient, then you get the higher amount, the 20,000. But if you were never eligible for a Pell Grant, you get the 10,000. And the, uh, the, the legal basis or the legal argument for writing off this loan um, is essentially the emergency powers that the president has uh, because of the COVID pandemic. There, there's a standing federal law that says that you know, the, the president can declare an emergency and during an emergency, he has certain authority to do things. And the, uh, the Education Act um, basically says that, that the Secretary of Education uh, has certain authorities to basically write off loans during an emergency. And, you know, I guess my argument is that that, that power is not unlimited. They just can't say it's an emergency, all students' debt is hereby canceled. Uh, there are actually it has to be related to the emergency, or at least limit time limited to be related. Well, yes. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing is that, that the language has certain conditions on which debt can be written off and for what reasons. And if you go through those conditions that are supposed to apply or restrict this authority, uh, the one that they're relying on is, is language that, that says that uh, affected individuals are not placed in a worse financial condition because of the emergency. And so they're saying, well, you know, all these students have these loans and the pandemic came along and clearly that made some people worse off. So we're just going to write off their loans. The problem is that's not, I don't think that's the right interpretation of the language. I think the better way to look at it is to say, okay, look, you have a student who in 2019 had $10,000 in student debt. The pandemic came along and the president is saying, well, you know, this debt that you had that existed before the pandemic, we're just going to write it off because you're worse off now than you were then. It's like, but that's not what the language says. It says that if, if you're worse off because of something that happened because of the pandemic. And so there's it's different like delaying payments. I mean, delaying well, payments would be. Well, for example, yeah. Now, one of the things that they've already done that hasn't been contested is they simply waived repayments and they've waived interest accrual during the period of the pandemic. And if you look at the, the section of the law that they're, 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 they're relying on, they give another example. Let's suppose a student enrolled in class in the um, um, February, January, February of 2020, right before the pandemic hit. And because of the pandemic, they, uh, the school canceled classes, the student withdrew, but he'd already gotten a loan. So the argument is, well, he took out some additional loan to pay for college during the semester in which he didn't attend because of the pandemic. You can argue that, well, making this student repay the money that he borrowed that he didn't get to use because of the pandemic, yeah, maybe the president has the authority to, 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 to relieve that student of that obligation. But that's clearly related to something that happened during the emergency during the pandemic. To simply give a categorical blanket waiver of all the debt that existed prior to the pandemic, I, I think va vastly exceeds the, the, you know, the congressional intent of, the, of that provision of law. And essentially that's the argument that I'm making in, in my, my, my issue brief is that yes, the president does have certain authority. He can waive certain debt under certain conditions, but the debt that he's wanting to write off doesn't meet those conditions. Now, aside from that argument, there's a second piece to the president's proposal, and that is he wants to change what's called the income contingent or income-related 
repayment plan. So under current law and under current regulations, uh, certain, well, let me back up. Normally when a student borrows money, he repays it in 10 years. The typical repayment period is you graduate from school, you got six months grace period. And after you've been graduated for half a year, you start making payments on your loan. They're fixed payments for 10 years and you pay it all back. Well, recognizing that, that could be a burden for some students, the Congress and the administration have over the years allowed students to have different terms. And one of the proposals that exists today is you get uh, what's called an income contingent loan. And that is that if your income exceeds 150% of poverty, you get to write off or get to, to, to pay on your loan at 10% of your excess income and you repay it over 20 years. So you get 20 years to write it off and you only repay it at a rate of 10% of your income in excess of 150% of poverty. So that's this income contingent repayment. And what happens in many cases, if your income is low enough, you get to the end of the 20 years, you haven't repaid your loan and the government simply writes it off. Uh, what the president is proposing is to say, we're going to lower the 10% to 5%. We're going to raise the 150% up to 225%. And in some cases, we're going to let you write off the loan at 10 years if it's less than $12,000. And otherwise, you get to write it off after 20 years. So he has vastly changed the terms of what exists today in, in the statute. And that's what's really questionable in terms of what he's doing is, the parameters that exist today, the 10%, the 150% of poverty in the 20 years, those are all existing in statutory language. So he is by administrative regulation proposing to reduce those, those parameters to 5% and to 225%, and in some cases, 10 years instead of 20 years. So that raises the question, does he have the authority to make those what are essentially statutory provisions to, in a sense, override those and replace them with regulatory provisions that are much more generous and that are going to cause many more students to never repay the vast majority of their loans. You argue that that constitutes an appropriation, which would violate the power of the purse that's invested in the Constitution by the Constitution to the Congress. Yeah, so this is a, a bit of a, a complicated argument, but yeah, so, so the Constitution gives Congress the power to appropriate money. So normally, only Congress can pass a law, which is called an appropriation bill, that gives the executive agencies the ability to spend money. Um, and that's in Article One of the Constitution. And there have been occasions in the past where the, con uh, the president would attempt to spend money, and Congress would say, no, wait a minute, you can't spend this money because we didn't appropriate it. There was a big case back uh, in 2015, under uh, under the uh, Affordable Care Act, where the administration, the Obama administration, tried to spend money that Congress didn't appropriate, and one of the dis federal district courts uh, basically ruled in Congress's favor, saying no, the administration didn't have the authority. And so, in this case, you have a similar situation where the government, the Department of Education, and the president are proposing to essentially write off student loans, or in the case of the income contingent loan they're gonna provide more favorable terms that are gonna allow fewer students to actually have to repay their loan or say it the other way, they're gonna allow more students to not repay their loans. And the Justice Department is basically saying, well, look, we're not spending money, we're simply not collecting money that the students would have otherwise paid us. And so they're saying, well, there's, there's a distinction here, you know, Congress can appropriate money, but we're not, we're not spending money, we're simply not collecting money that's owed to the government. 
The problem with that argument is they're ignoring the Federal Credit Reform Act, which Congress passed um, you know, several decades ago. And under the terms of the, credit, credit, uh, the Federal Credit Reform Act, student loans are not treated as a loan and a repayment of a loan, which is how you would normally think of it. The government loans money and then people pay it back. And those are two separate transactions. While that is technically true as a matter of finance and, and cash flow, it's not true as a matter of law. Congress has redefined what that credit transaction is. And instead of counting the cash flow of money in, money out, the way the budget now works is those are calculated on a net present value, which means you say, what is the amount that's lent, that, 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 that's being lent, uh, loaned by the government? And what is the expected repayment? And you compute a present value and you come up with a number. And if people repay more of their loan, then the government on a present value basis makes money. And if people repay less than the value of their loan, the government has a cost. Well, well that cost triggers an appropriation under the current law. And because it's treated as a net amount, which is defined as a cost, and that cost triggers an appropriation, the administration is basically saying, well, ignore the Federal Credit Reform Act and pretend <laughs> that that doesn't exist. And actually, interestingly enough, in their legal brief, they never felt that they, they never mentioned the Federal Credit Reform Act. But in my opinion, it, it doesn't comply. And therefore, what the administration is proposing to do will be considered an appropriation, and therefore, they are exceeding their authority. Tori, the one of the things that, that that drives me bonkers is even if you even if you agree with the concept and principle, okay, what we've done is we've got an administration that's added at a trillion dollars potentially to our debt without any kind of input from Congress which I think is stunning because if you take the issue out of the way, let's suppose this isn't student debt. Let's suppose this is something else, okay? Are, are, are Democrats and Republicans gonna stand up you know, for a future president that uses this same sort of argument, but in a different way, perhaps in a way that isn't so benevolent sounding? I mean, it, it, I think regardless of how you feel about student loan debt, the precedent that this sets for future presidents who may not always be acting in the benevolence <laughs> of, of taxpayers uh, or of, of, of student or whoever, um, that, that that should be shocking. And that should be a warning shot across the bow for, for many, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, the, the, you, you, it's hard to argue that he's setting a precedent in terms of trying to, uh, trying to spend money without clear congressional authority. I mean, obviously, the Obama case, uh, the... the um, the Affordable Care Act a case under President Obama that I mentioned earlier, and of course, the, the famous one under President Trump, where he tried to use emergency authority to divert money from the Defense Department to build the wall uh, on the Mexican border. So there are examples here. But again, I mean, in, in both of those cases, we were talking less than $10 billion. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was small change compared to the potential trillions of dollars or trillion dollars that, that, that President Biden is, is, is uh, proposing to do here. So yeah, I mean, it is the the magnitude of what is being proposed far exceeds anything we've seen to date, and that's scary. Um, given <laughs> what's happened here, uh, do you think that there was a better way? Any better ideas to approach the whole? I mean, I, this is probably a whole other discussion, uh, but do you think that there was probably a better way to approach the the, the cost of college and 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 the and the amount of debt that students need to assume in order to get a college degree these days? 
Well, I mean, cl clearly there's, there's different ways of looking at this. I mean, you know, I, one of the things that I, that I discovered as I was researching this issue brief is that uh, both Australia and England have something similar to what the president is proposing and similar to what we have today, which is an income contingent uh, repayment system. But in, but in those cases, it applies to all students. In other words, as I mentioned before, currently students in the U.S. have a choice. They can choose the regular 10-year repayment plan or they can choose some other plan. Um, and it's an option and not all students understand. I mean, in fact, part of the problem is, is there are multiple options that students can choose today in the U.S. Whereas in England and in Australia, it's, it's just one plan. You go to school, the government lends the money that's you know, you're in a sense taking out a loan, the money goes to the college, it pays for your loan, you graduate, and then you pay it back. And, and what you pay back is based on your income. And, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you think about it, the typical college graduate, a four-year bachelor degree student, over their lifetime, they'll make a million dollars on average more than a high school graduate. So you can look at college as being an education, you know, college is an investment in your future that you know, on average students, college students earn a lot more and therefore they're investing in their future and it makes perfect sense. I mean, every business in the country borrows money to make an investment in their, in their business. And as a person, you invest in your future, you go to college, you get your degree, you have a higher standard of living throughout your life and you repay it back. And in England, it's a 25 year repayment period. In Australia, it's unlimited. You, you know, if your income is low enough, you would go to your grave still owing on your student debt because the argument is you made an investment, you earned the return as higher earnings, and you should repay your loan. And I'm afraid what the president is doing is he's not trying to figure out how to make it easier for people to pay back their loan. He's trying to figure out how to make it easier for people not to repay their loans. And I think that's a fundamental difference. And if just in terms of the cost of college, clearly there are things that we could do I mean, the, the typical student, you know, only 40% of, of uh, four-year uh, college students complete in four years. And if you start to college, you're going to get a bachelor's degree. It should take you four years. 40% of students actually finish in four years. Most of them take six or eight years. Well, obviously, the longer it takes you to finish college, the more it's going to cost you, the more you're deferring getting a job and earning money to, to repay your loan. So, you know, it hurts you on both ends. You incur more debt and you delay repayments, which means there's more interest. So, you know, there are things that we could do to help students graduate on time. I mean, the, for example, a lot of high schools offer uh, AP classes and IB classes. If we encouraged students to do that at the high school level, and we then encourage the colleges to give them credit for the classes that they take that are comparable to what they would take as freshmen. A lot of students could finish in three years. And if you finish a three-year, a four-year degree in three years, you've reduced the cost by 25%. There are things we could be doing that would require coordination at the high school level with the college level that would help students get through school on time or perhaps even ahead of time. And, you know, time is money. You get done sooner, you borrowed less, you start earning more, it makes it a lot easier to repay your debt. Lowering the repayment standards to such a degree, you incentivize both the colleges and the students to raise prices and borrow more to pay for those higher prices because they're confident that they'll never have to repay the money anyway. I mean, it's essentially, it's a backdoor way of increasing college tuition and providing it for free because you're going to say, well, instead of free college, we're going to let you borrow money. But if you don't have to repay it back, that's the same as making it free anyway. And of course, it's not really free. The taxpayers are going to have to pay for it.
You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. That's all the time we have for this segment, but don't go away because Tori and Steve and I will be right back after these short messages to talk about some current events going on in Washington. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson and Policy Director Tori Gorman. Uh, we've been discussing the president's plan for student loan forgiveness. And, you know, Steve, uh, in sort of a, a breaking news uh, segment here, we, we were talking a little bit about the cost of this and uh, some of the unofficial estimates. The, the Congressional Budget Office has actually weighed in uh, with a letter saying that the, uh, a part of it, the, the loan forgiveness part of it, would cost around $400 billion. And uh, that estimate has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, I wonder if you could just address what CBO included in that and what they didn't. Yeah, so I think, as I mentioned before, the, uh, the Penn Wharton budget model had uh, come up with an estimate of about $500 billion. And uh, what CBO is saying is that they, they think it's about $400 billion. And this refers to the, uh, the loan forgiveness portion. So the, the president had a sort of a two-part plan. Um, he's going to allow students with uh, 10000 in student loan debt or 20000 in debt if they had uh, received a Pell Grant. Basically, they would just write off that amount. And... CBO estimated that about 95% of the student loan population would qualify and that about 90% of that portion would actually apply for and receive the assistance. It's kind of interesting. The, the White House was pushing back, saying, well, we don't think participation will be quite that high. And it's sort of, it's sort of odd because, I mean, you know, if, if the federal government is allowing you to write off ten dollars or $20,000 in student loan debt, I mean, unless they make it incredibly hard for you to qualify or to apply, or they give you, you know, a big runaround and administrative paperwork burden. I mean, it's kind of kind of hard. You wouldn't make a little bit of effort to 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 get ten or twenty thousand dollars in loan forgiveness. So, you know, I I actually would argue that CBO is a little low on their estimate because you know when the government's handing out that kind of, of debt forgiveness. Uh, it seems to me everybody who who is eligible would would make an effort to apply. But uh, the, the thing the CBO did not yet do, uh, and they said that they will at some point in the near future release an estimate on the uh, income contingent repayment portion. And that, that's the issue of, of you know, student loans going forward. Uh, right now, students have to pay that back at a rate of 10% of, of their income above 150% of the poverty level. And they have 25 years or, or 20 years to basically pay that off. Um, the administration is proposing to, to change the thresholds from uh, 10% to 5% and the income threshold from 150% of poverty to 225% of poverty. And CBO is still working on that estimate and, and to their, you know, to their credit or to their, you know, recognizing the difficulty there. I mean, you're essentially estimating what future college students, uh, what their earnings are going to be in the future. And that's a very difficult estimate to try to make. So, there, there clearly is a, is a level of imprecision there, uh, but you know, again, Penn Wharton had estimated that, that that piece itself could also cost about 450 billion. So, you know, I, I suspect that CBO will probably be in that neighborhood 
And, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're talking real money between the two, the, the two components yeah. of the president's plan, uh, as well as what he also had been uh, doing the last year or two. And that is allowing students to defer and write off interest that had accrued during the pandemic. Um, that also has a cost, but it's, you know, 10 or 20 billion. It's not 200 or 300 billion. So, but, but <laughs> yeah. you know, it's a big package. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of expensive. And the, uh, you know, the thing that struck me is that there was uh, so much concentration on that 400 billion number. Uh, but it doesn't include that second part that you talked about, which could get really uh, expensive. E- equally large. Time. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, the central premise of your paper, uh, your issue brief was that uh, the president really lacked the authority to um, to implement this plan. And uh Sure enough, there's there's already been a lawsuit filed uh, in Indiana, uh, I believe, um, contesting the president's authority. Have you had a chance to look at that and uh, compare the arguments being made there with your arguments? You know, actually, it's sort of a, a novel legal argument. And one of the issues that I had raised was who would have standing to bring uh, a lawsuit. And my initial take was that obviously the the, uh, the banks are the, the, the uh, private entities that are holding guaranteed loans. If the government wrote off that debt and didn't compensate them, they would have standing. And obviously, if this is an Article I violation, Congress would have standing. But uh, the guy in Indiana actually came up with it with a very novel idea that it didn't even occur to me. But after looking at it, it seems like uh, it may have some merit. And he, he has standing because he said he's participating in what is currently um, there is a provision of law that allows individuals to uh, serve in, in public service as a, you know, a teacher, doctor, nurse, uh, you know, some sort of a public employee, and you can get loan forgiveness. And usually after 10 years of public service, they will write off your loan. Now, there's a provision of the tax code that says that the, the, the value of the loan forgiveness is taxable income. Now, Congress has temporarily waived that at the federal level. And if you participate in one of these loan forgiveness programs, it's, it's actually part of permanent law that that, that taxable component does not, does not apply. But under the emergency authority that the president has proposed, uh, he's going to write off the loan, but the state tax will apply to the loan forgiveness. And so this guy in Indiana is saying, look, if I participate in the loan forgiveness program, which I'm currently in, when the loan is written off after 10 years, I don't have to pay anything on the loan. And the, uh, the, the taxable forgiveness, or I'm sorry, the, the debt forgiveness is not taxable. But under the emergency authority, it will be taxable. And therefore, I'm going to be harmed by this policy. Because right now, I'm going to be, you know, in a sense, you know, no debt and no taxes, just leave me alone. But by implementing this emergency policy, the uh, the debt will be forgiven, but the taxes will not. And so he's being harmed. And I, I think the estimate was he's going to owe about $1,000 in, in additional taxes to the state of Indiana, which clearly is $1,000 he would not owe under current law. Well, let's say that we'll have to follow that. Uh, <laughs> Tori, I was going to turn to you. Did you have a follow-up question? It, there's one thing I don't understand about that that case, though, and I thought the participation in the in the President Biden's uh, loan forgiveness program was voluntary. So I'm I'm trying to understand 
you know, how he ends up with a big tax bill uh, if he doesn't participate, if he doesn't apply for the loan forgiveness. Well, again, this is this is the interesting thing of his of the of the of the case is um, the White House announced that for I think in the neighborhood of five or six million or eight million maybe folks they already had the information that they needed to apply the loan forgiveness automatically, and you know based on some of the press reporting, it appears that he falls into the category because he's participating in this public service loan forgiveness. Um, they already have the information that they need to apply the debt relief to him automatically. What I think is the voluntary component is for those individuals who are not in that category, they would have to file and apply for the for the for the debt relief. And so he's claiming that he falls into under under the category that the administration is going to do this automatically, and therefore he doesn't have a choice, and it's not voluntary. Hmm. That is a sticky wicket. <laughs> well, these are, these, we don't follow regular procedures on things anymore. And trying to do everything mm-hmm. through administrative process like this, it's just raising a whole new uh, jurisprudence of uh, policymaking through administrative law, which has been building for quite some time, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it's really reaching a crescendo. No, you make a good point. I mean, if this had gone through the committee process, this is something that would have come out during hearings, or if they'd gone through the normal rulemaking process, this is something that would have come out via the public comment period. But the fact that they did this without any input and unilaterally, you're going to have, this is, this is what happens. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's so big, it can't be ignored. It's not like, mm-hmm you know, a few billion here or there that can be sort of shoved under the rug. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is big. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's big politically. I mean, it's not just big financially, but it's big politically. We're getting it towards the end of the fiscal year. Uh, a little bit of a cliffhanger, as always. Looks like there's some progress in the Senate, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so I know we, 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 we got not a lot of time in this segment, so I'll be real quick here. We did have a key procedural vote on a continuing resolution that would allow uh, that would fund the federal government uh, until December 16th. You know that the fiscal year is ending at the end of September. We don't have appropriations in place for fiscal 23, which starts on October 1st. So Congress is quickly trying to pass a continuing resolution, a temporary funding measure that would provide uh, funding uh, until December 16th, when they can get their act together and, and put together a full year spending package. So uh, the the CR passed a, a key procedural vote. In the Senate on Tuesday, uh, the Senate still needs to vote on final passage and, of course, send it to the House. And then the House votes and sends it to the president. They have a deadline of midnight on Friday. Um, Hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, the planets will align and they can get everything done in time. Uh, You know, occasionally we have a a senator here or there um, who who causes problems. But uh, given the the, the massive vote uh, yesterday on the the procedural vote, which was 72-23, I'm hoping that everybody sort of falls in line and we can get this done in time. All right. So it looks like no shutdown right now. For now, anyway, right, but right. Uh, still, still some problems to come. And I think it runs through December sixteenth. Was that right. the date that it? Friday, uh, December sixteenth, and that doesn't give them a lot of leeway before Christmas. So I'm, I'm thinking that they that they'll probably get it done. And I know there's been some question as to whether or not they would actually get the full year appropriations done or kick the can again into into next year. Um, and we've got two the two senior appropriators on both the Republican and Democratic side in the Senate are retiring this year, Senators Leahy and Shelby. And I think as just, you know, in, in, in honor of their long service, I think that the two chambers will come together and, and get the appropriations done before we end this 
this calendar year, just out of respect for the two gentlemen who are retiring. Okay. Well, we'll look back on that uh, prediction in December. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking to Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson and Policy Director Tori Gorman. We're discussing things in Washington, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson. In this section, we're, we're going to get a little bit wonky on interest rates and the Fed and how it all affects the budget and the economy. Um, so, Steve, I'll start with you. The Fed is continuing a long march on uh, trying to corral inflation by raising interest rates. And uh, they did it again uh, this month. And people are wondering whether uh, how long this is going to go on and, uh, you know, whether they'll eventually have to raise interest rates uh, so high and keep them high for a long enough time that it uh, would break the back of inflation, but also perhaps cause a recession. Um, where do you think we are in that uh, in that uh, <laughs> story? Well, you know, I, I don't I don't think the Fed is done raising interest rates. They've they've been pretty clear uh, after last week's meeting. Um, you know, they they raised the short term rate, which is the federal funds rate, to, to a range of three to three and a quarter percent. And in their sort of uh, um, backup material that they published after one of the meetings, they are predicting that the, uh, the, the Fed funds rate will, will peak next year in 2023 at a rate of 4.6%. So, you know, we're at three and a quarter and they think they're going to have to go as high as four and a half or 4.6% next year. And then it'll start going down after that. Uh, and that, that, that inflation will get back down to the target range sometime around 2024. Um, I, you know, I guess my my guess is that they're going to have to go maybe a little higher than that and a little longer than that. But, um, you know, like everyone else, it's it's you know it's hard to make predictions about the future. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, what is the um, uh, you know the 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 trade off there? You're beginning to hear some talk that the Fed is going too fast on on this and that it's uh you know not worth the pain of causing a a recession um that was kind of you 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 were warning about that not that that was a thing you were warning that that would happen that people would would well, start pushing back on the fed in your issue brief well yeah i mean and this is a constant theme we've been hearing for for two years i mean we went from you know, transitory inflation to peak inflation to, oh my gosh, we don't know how long it's going to be. You know, I mean, no, nobody likes pain. Nobody likes high interest rates. And, you know, for a decade and a half, we've had, you know, ultra low rates, you know, negative interest rates. And if history is any guide, that's simply not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's got to be when you run excessively loose monetary policy for an extended period of time, the risk you run is inflation. And now inflation is here. And the people who don't like inflation and don't like high interest rates have to make a decision. You know, either we're going to tame inflation and keep interest rates high enough long enough to do so, or we're going to backtrack and we're going to cut rates too soon and inflation will not be contained and we'll end up with another resurgence in another year or so. 
And that's the dilemma the Fed is trying to deal with. And if you mm-hmm. looking back at history, late 70s, early 80s, we went through this exact same pattern where you know they raised rates, inflation looked like it was coming down, they lowered rates, inflation went back up. You know, it's it's a cyclical thing. Now, again, you can't necessarily say that past is prologue and that what happened then is going to happen now. There are differences, you know, fundamentally fundamental differences in terms of the state of the economy. You know, there's the war in the Ukraine, there's the COVID, you know, there's China lockdowns. <laughs> You've got all kinds of issues that are different, but, you know, inflation is largely uh, a monetary phenomenon, in my opinion. And, you know, I, I again, I'm perhaps in the minority of, in a minority opinion on, in that view, but my study of history is that, you know, the, the Fed is largely to blame because they kept interest rates too low too long, and they've got to pay the price to get inflation back down. Tori, all of this uh, is not irrelevant to the budget. I mean, what's <laughs> happening now uh, you know, my my eyes kind of popped out uh, looking at the reaction of the markets to uh, on uh, federal uh, interest rates um, on the 10 year and, and, and others. Um, not surprisingly, they have been going up. Um, what is what is all this? Uh, what, what are the budgetary consequences of all this? Well, I, I I think there was definitely, you know, some concern this week as people watch the, the 10 year uh, the yield on the ten-year Treasury in the tradable markets, you know, popped up to three point nine and 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 potentially pierced you know four percent before settling back down. Um, when you take a look at the interest rate forecasts that the Congressional Budget Office used to develop their for their projections of <clears throat> spending and revenues for this year and and debt and deficits, um, that the interest rates you know that they projected. Uh, uh, for, you know, they didn't hit 3.8, you know, in, interest rates on treasury until like 10 years from now. And, and we're already there. Um, and we're certainly not going back down anytime soon. So you're obviously going to see net interest costs rise uh, significantly above what the Congressional Budget Office has projected. Um, and I think, you know, that that's obviously a, a concern for, for lawmakers and for taxpayers alike, because net interest, you know, that's money we owe and, and, and nothing that we that we get for it. Right. Uh, we're not building bridges with that money. You know, we're not providing education or transfer payments or Social Security benefits or health care with that money. That's just debt service. Um, and it doesn't, you know provide any kind of productive capacity here. It doesn't increase our productive capacity at all here in the United States. So, um, you know, already net interest was one of the fastest growing categories in the federal budget. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, even more so now that, that interest rates are rising. Yeah, that's one of the real vulnerabilities of the, the budget is interest rates because, you know, we've taken on, as you mentioned, we've taken on a huge amount of debt. And, right. uh, you know, I was I was looking at uh, some numbers comparing 30 years ago in 1992, where we were and uh, when the Concord Coalition started and, and this year, and then looking at the projection 30 years from now, one of the most striking things is that interest number that you mentioned, that interest. 
it was 3.1% of GDP at a really, really high. That's, that's very high by historical standards in 1992. That's one of the reasons people were so worried about the, uh, the debt. And uh, now the debt is much, much higher than it was now, not just in nominal terms, but, but as a percentage of the economy, it's, it's more than twice what it was then. And yet interest costs on the debt have actually come down uh, as a percentage to about 1.6% right. of GDP. So people, you know, we've gotten an enormous break by having low interest rates. Well, now the, uh, the party is over. Right. And, uh, interest rates are headed back up. So, you know, the chickens years, come to roost. <laughs> yeah, and we've, we've run up all that debt. That's that mm -hmm. huge amount of debt that we've run up is no longer going to be rolled over. It's still lower interest rates than, than, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, it was say in 92, but, uh, but just the sheer volume of debt makes it is so large that, that by, you know, 30 years from now, you don't have to have interest rates go up any more than they are right now, basically, mm -hmm. to produce debt uh, to interest costs at around seven and a half percent of GDP, which is astronomical by by historical standards. We're not isolated. This is a, a worldwide phenomenon right now of fighting inflation, central banks raising rates, and uh, you know the dollar strengthening is is harming other currencies. And we've got warnings about a global recession. Is that something that we should be worried about? We are very much, you know, an interconnected global economy. And so when the United States Federal Reserve raises interest rates, makes our debt more attractive to investors, other central banks have to sort of follow suit in order to make their bonds attractive to investors as well. And I think one of the places where we're seeing this, this play out is in the UK. Um, you know, already, you know, the UK was facing enormous headwinds uh, from, you know, Brexit, uh, you know, a moribund economy, uh, the energy crisis that's uh, in, in Europe that, uh, as a result of the, the war in Ukraine with Russia. Now they've got a new prime minister who brought in a new finance minister, their new finance minister uh, announced uh, a, what they call a new mini budget um, to sort of jumpstart uh, the economy. And part of that mini budget was the, the largest unfunded tax credit in 50 years. And uh, basically investors freaked out uh, in the UK. You've got monetary policy acting in direct conflict with, with fiscal policy and the deficit impact of this big huge tax cut. Investors basically said, I don't like this. And they dumped UK bonds. And along with it, they dumped pound sterling and the central bank had to intervene to prop things up. What's going on in the UK is, is very, very scary. It also has the potential to spread like a contagion. I know that, that the folks are worried about Germany and, and other economies in the EU. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a very back, concerning time. Yeah, it gets back to this uh, dynamic that Steve was talking about earlier, where you have the political pressures are to stimulate, uh, you know, mm -hmm. as, uh, as the uh, as inflation ratchets up, it's it's kind of like you know the the, the central banks want to uh, tamp down inflation, and yet politicians have an incentive to either cut taxes or spend more in order to help help uh, mm -hmm. their constituents fight inflation, and it's just feeding to inflation. So yeah. there are a lot of international economists that are looking at the the United States and what the Federal Reserve is doing and saying, hey. You know, inflation in the United States, core inflation is only around 6%. Y'all shouldn't be raising 
rates at this point. You know, Europe is dealing with problems that far surpass what the United States is dealing with. You know, the European central banks need to be, you know, raising rates to, to take care of, to, to crush inflation there. And they feel that the United States just shouldn't be doing anything at this point. It's definitely creating some tension among central bankers. We're kind of in a dicey territory right now. That's a good teaser for uh, for future uh, episodes. Mm-hmm. Future. This is a, another story that we're going to have to be following closely because mm-hmm. uh, I th- I think you're right. We're we're not an island, and uh, how all this plays out internationally is going to be really really crucial. Kind of right, like right. and it has the potential to affect other other negotiations, other issues. Right. I mean, right now the United States and the European uh, economies we're all united in favor of Ukraine against Russia. But, you know, if our economies start performing disparately, you know, that coalition, has, that, that might break down. Um, you know, we're all sort of make united front against China. And, and, you know, that also has the potential to break down as, as you know, economic situations worsen. So especially if we're perceived to be the, the root cause. So it's, it, it, yeah, it's, it's a, I'm glad I'm not a central banker. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. That's all the time we have this week. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I have been discussing a whole bunch of warning signs coming out of Washington. Uh, And we'll be back with uh, more depressing news uh, next week on another episode of Facing the Future. 